Hi, everybody. I love this little intimate group. It's lovely. As she said, I'm Deborah. I was born for the Keepers of the Water Clan at the Yuma Quetzal Nation and the Badger and Corn Clans at Laguna Pueblo in New Mexico. And I'd like to recognize the Abenaki and Mahican people who stewarded the land here in Vermont for centuries. Tonight, I'm going to be reading a few sections from my forthcoming memoir, Whiskey Tender. And since you guys are writers, I'll talk a little bit about process, too, as I read. I hope that's interesting to you, um, considering that you guys are all working on your own books. When my parents left their wedding reception, mom was sober. Dad, of course, drove. He sped toward Fourth Avenue, the main thoroughfare for thoroughfare in Yuma, cutting into the opposite lane on corners, fishtailing with the groom's finesse. Mom grew scared. She hiked up her wedding dress, reached her long leg over his thigh, and stomped the brake with her high heel shoe. The tires locked up. The car swung wide to the right before spinning them all the way around to the left, showing them the surprised expressions of people in other cars. It was like we were riding on the tilt-a-wheel at the Yuma County Fair, Mom said. The car slammed into the side of a busy downtown bar. The Plymouth's front end was mangled. Steam poured out of the radiator. It was a Sunday afternoon in April 1963, and the day was still light. Afternoon drinkers came flowing out of the bar's smoky interior like rice throwers out of a cathedral in a haze of incense and prayer. Being the eldest of 15 kids had made mom conspicuous in this small town, and the bar was her father Juan's favorite. So some of the regulars and barflies realized she was a Herrera girl and wanted to know if she was okay. Sirens started up in the distance. A couple of biker chicks helped mom out of the car, and she stood with them on the sidewalk in front, staring at the damaged headlight and hood. In her hurry to get out, she'd caught the train of her wedding dress in the door, and it had ripped. When she saw the torn fabric, she started crying. She told us, I could see your dad through the window of the car with his forehead rested on the wheel, and I knew exactly what he was thinking. Dad was from the Yuma Reservation across the train tracks and river, and he was worried the town cops were going to book him again. But when the cops pulled up at the accident scene and looked at mom, plopped on the curb in a puff of white satin, mascara running down her cheeks, they decided to be merciful and let dad go. Mom said they felt sorry for her because she was a good local Catholic girl who'd married a crazy Indian. When dad walked in the front door and heard her telling us the story, he laughed and said she was wrong. He said the cops let her go, not because they pitied her, but because mom was beautiful and pretty people got away with shit. He pulled off his black boots and lifted his holy socks onto the coffee table. He put his arm around her and said getting away scot-free on their wedding day was the first signs mom's charm would work magic in his life, like a lucky rabbit's foot or a powerful tattoo. He reminded mom how romantic he'd been at their wedding, how he'd refused to let her sisters decorate the car with do-it-yourself flowers because the phony tissue paper looked too common for a woman of her caliber. Instead, he and his brothers had performed a top-secret midnight operation, 
sneaking into St. Thomas Indian Mission's garden on the reservation where they cut a bunch of roses to string over the roof of the car. Mom groaned, don't brag about stealing from the church. But the two of them laughed and dad went in the kitchen to grab a snack. Mom's protestations never fooled me. She loved the memory of the stolen roses as well as dad's claim that her beauty swayed the cops. But what made her light up especially was the way he called her his lucky charm. This is how my parents twisted bad things around, seeing the appearances of events in funhouse mirrors, stretching memories tall and pretty when they were really goofy and squat. They knew a story could be told in various ways, and this is how they chose to shape theirs, and how they would teach me to shape mine as well, by molding their wedding day car accident into their first blessing as a couple. In, um, and this is them on their wedding day. In uh, Pueblo, there's a word, it's woitsiki. It means for life's sake we do this. So remember to remember a kind of consciousness that is essential to community. Keep to a vision that has hopefulness in it. Woitsiki asks us, what kind of ancestor will you be? This memoir is about way more than me. A native person's memories are political, and as I wrote, I kept reminding myself that it was my job to bear witness and correct misunderstandings. There are 574 federally recognized tribes in the US, but historically we've been flattened by this term Indian. Many scholars argue that this misnomer given to us by explorers who thought they'd found India was intentionally maintained because it was better not to acknowledge that many distinctive cultures and organized governments existed here before their arrival. They wanted to convince people that the Americas were mostly empty, populated by an unthinking block of heathens because it made it easier to justify taking the land. Celtic speakers alone are clearly defined as the Welsh, Breton, Irish Gaelic, Scots Gaelic, Cornish, and Manx yet very few people know anything about the distinct languages, mythologies, and belief systems of US tribes. Where culture is respected, distinctions matter. We sisters were broken girls. We twisted our ankles sailing off play playground swings toppled out of tamarisk trees, plucked yellow jacket and broken glass stingers out of our skin. We slammed our fingers in car doors, burned our feet in campfires, and then sat in the waiting room at the Yuma Indian Hospital, ice pressed to injuries. Joan broke her wrist, I broke my collarbone, Lori had a two inch scar down the center of her chest, Monica slipped through the handrails of a tall metal slide and landed 20 feet below. The reservation was rowdy in the 1970s. By the time I was three, scars were a main source of pride. Put a little whiskey in dad's beer and he got to talking about his friends, crushed under a fast moving train, stabbed in the chest during an alley fight, propped against a tree at a public park with a hot needle sticking out of an arm, killed in a landmine explosion in Vietnam. 
Mom tried to shush Dad when he told us his stories, but he said we needed to know the truth if we were going to survive, to hear how tough the world could be. Swagger was a sure way for us kids to get praise. Despondency hung over the reservation, and when toddlers and children acted rebellious, adults saw hope and verve. A sassy girl was a girl who might make it, even against the odds. My sisters and I did what we could to impress. We rejected all things girly. We painted our dolls' faces with markers, tattooing their chins in the style of our female ancestors. We chopped off their hair, and when they grew gr grotesque, threw their heads in the trash can and danced their bodies around, calling out like barkers selling tickets to see Geronimo at the World's Fair. Come and see the amazing headless wonders. We were unruly Indian girls, not the friendly Thanksgiving Day types who knew how to cook and behave. Our mother said it was too late to teach us any matter, manners. Dad always said, broken bones grow back stronger, raising us the same way his older brother Gene raised him. A father's job was to control the pace of the world's wounding, to dole out the pain in slightly bigger doses over time so that his kids would learn not to break under pressure. This is what I think of when I think of my sisters and me growing up. We didn't get anything for free, and we blossomed because of it. Blood flowering into bruises, skin thick and ripened under the Sonoran Desert sun. So here I show that the Yuma Nation sits on the banks of the Colorado River in what was once a rich, rich delta for farming. Ironically, the strength of our position led to our demise during the gold rush when thousands of 49ers marched through the desert on the way to find gold in California. They passed through our land almost exclusively because there's a bend in the river known as the Yuma Crossing that slows the water enough to make it safe to swim across. So for hundreds of miles north, the 49ers would have drowned if they tried crossing, and that's why they funneled through our territory. And they trampled our crops, essentially. They destroyed my ancestors' food source and created a period of great starvation. And this has been chronicled most famously um, in Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And this slide shows our traditional hairstyle, which would have been river dreadlocks. Um, another thing that my book partakes in is sort of the effect of the extractive industries in the Southwest. Um, state violence put my family in environmental danger. Um, my grandmother Esther grew up at Laguna Pueblo, which is home of one of the largest open pit uranium mines in the country. And she died from a very rare form of sinus cancer when I was a little kid. Um, Los Alamos National Laboratory tested the atomic bomb near her home, and she used to talk about the bright light and loud blast that rattled the windows at Laguna. Radioactive debris fell from the sky, killing livestock and poisoning crops. The afternoon of the test, it rained, but, but no one in the government warned the people out there not to drink out of their cisterns. Uh, the explosion was seen in Las Cruces, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, and El Paso. That's a wide area. The Office of Censorship, um, what did they used to say? They used to say, um, loose lips sink ships. You know, they didn't want people to talk. They tried to keep the news local. One published account out of the Socorro Daily News featured a blind woman who was being taken back to school at UNM, 
and then she claimed to have seen a bright light, despite the fact that she, she didn't have sight. As in all scenes of tremendous violence, there was this incongruous beauty that people talked about. Brigadier General Farrell described the explosion as magnificent, stupendous, and terrifying. William Lawrence of the New York Times jotted down a description of the VIPs in the moments after the blast. The little groups that had stood rooted to the earth like desert plants broke into dance, the rhythm of primitive man dancing at one of his fire festivals at the coming of spring. I think it's so oddly fitting that the journalist on the scene likened the scientist to early man. In the wake of America's biggest experiment, Lawrence saw our common trait, the joy of men who have learned to use fire, the joy of men who know they will win their battle, the joy of men receiving a sign that their God is stronger than their enemy's God, craters blasted in the desert, craters growing in the soft tissue of my grandma Esther's cheeks. This slide shows some of the history that I tried to weave into the narrative. So I wrote it as a memoir, and then you know you kind of give it to your editor, and she's like, what is your wish for it? And I'm like, I wish that I could put in a little more history without breaking the narrative arc. And she's like, okay, we're gonna do it. So I went and got a lot of research done, and then I kind of wove it back in. So my father was tried as a minor. Um, he, he was sent to prison as a minor. He was tried as an adult, dis despite being a minor. And some of the reason for that is this discriminatory law called the Major Crimes Act. I write about the Dawes Act, the termination era, the Jack Pill uranium mine, the relocation program that created the largest wave of um, native migration to cities off reservation that me and my family took part of. Um, and the challenging thing for me and for all of you is to do this in a way that's entertaining. So I focused a lot on trying to find gallows humor and kind of this recognizable 1980s American landscape, you know, where you have like Rubik's Cube and you have the Atari station that you play with and you're going to the mall and you're at the roller skating rink. Um, that was very, very important to me. I'm just gonna read two more short little sections and then we can talk. And I think this section that I picked maybe shows a little bit of what I'm talking about, about trying to capture the era. This is a, a scene from 1984. The cheerleader said they called Josie Lumpy because they liked her. A wild Apache girl with a crooked grin and braided hair, she'd been a little on the heavy side as a kid, but by our freshman year of high school, she'd picked up a meth habit and lost most of the fat. We were at the same party that night at Jay's house in the foothills by the community college. His parents were out of town, an art gallery opening for their friend, and my half-Korean pal, Kira, had invited me to join in. Like Jay, Kira had been born in New York City, and I loved being in her orbit. It ma made it easier to imagine getting out of Farmington. Josie had been invited to the party to sell weed, and I knew as soon as she swapped the skunk in her pocket for cash, she'd disappear. She disdained most kids at our high school. The popular crowd, the smart ones, the shy Navajo girls who stuck to each other like glue in the lunchroom. She was irreverent and moody, and the longer I knew her, the more her wildness felt traditional to me. The month before, a rumor had torn through school, a story about Josie going ballistic one night when she caught some skinny white boy rolling a drunk Navajo downtown. People said she'd broken a bottle and sent him running, threatening to spank his veins good. 
In my book, the story made her a hero, but the jocks, cheerleaders, and self-identifying mobs at the party cared less about the reason she did it and more about how dangerous it made her seem. After I heard the story, I started to feel drawn to her just like I'd been to Uncle Gene. She started that rumor herself, Kira told me, before walking out on the patio to smoke with Jay. I watched them light cigarettes through the window, knowing they'd talk about Motown, jazz, ska, and London-based bands unfamiliar to me. Afraid to sound stupid, I stayed inside and nursed a lukewarm beer until Josie came over to me. What's she doing here, she shouted over the music, making sure everyone would hear. Josie called me Pocahati, El Malinque, Tokmatone, a traitor by friendship and blood. All she could see was my half-breed body. She hated me because my mother was a Spanish siren with a leopard skin jacket and almond eyes, a prima donna who refused to be called indigena. It didn't matter that I felt repulsed and betrayed by mom's thinking. She could smell the Lopez Herrera lineage on me. It was in my pale winter skin, my private school vocabulary, and my enunciated way of talking. To Josie and the other badass native girls at my public school, I was mainstream enough to be considered white. Maybe they thought my family had too much money, or I acted too confident around our teachers. But regardless of what they thought, that my mother canceled out my father, I also knew the one drop rule was real and that to most people in Farmington, I would always be Indian. Let's see what I have left. So this is my dad and his brothers when they were now versus when they were little kids. And it just cracks me up when I look at this because look at how much the world has changed. My parents grew up in a generation that thought assimilating to capitalist mainstream views was the only way we were gonna be accepted in this country. And as a young child, I believed them. But over time, I began to resent the school system and the country at large for being so disrespectful and disdainful of my ancestors. And the book's arc ultimately dramatizes that. The way I realized I had two value systems that were being presented to me until I finally decided I wanted to live in a way that gave me freedom of choice over fear of alienation. I've always been a rebel. And this book is a celebration of my radical individualism. One of the toughest things about being an indigenous mother is that you can't depend on your community and schools to instill your value system in your kids. You don't have enough in common with most Americans for that to happen. And so it falls on you to sometimes override or try to override your child's education. When they reach a certain age, they hit a period where they begin to wonder if your views are odd. They ask, why did you go to the Native American church and take peyote with a medicine man instead of seeing a therapist, therapist as a teen? Or they say, I don't see other parents claiming a special animal as their kind of totem like you have with your badger. I had these struggles with my own parents as well, of course, because they're an older generation. My indigenous father emphasized relational thinking, symbiotic and symbolic living, but my Chicana mother wanted me to be Catholic. We accept and reject, combine and remix the wisdom that gets hand, handed down to us. And this book is a grappling with inheritance as well as a reclamation. And I'm gonna read just one more small, small section and that will be it. 
And this is kind of a tribute to my mom because I had such a tough time with her Catholicism growing up. I can't even tell you. You have to read the book to see. The last time I went home to the reservation was for my mother's funeral. My father was driving, and as we crossed the southern Arizona desert following the transport van that carried her body, I fell into a sandstorm dream. Dust blew, obscuring the highway, and small pebbles pecked the car like hail. I was driving alone in my dream and wanted to keep up with my mother, but the wind blew the sand so thick it darkened the earth, and I had to slow down because the steering wheel pulled through my hands. Though I knew the car might crash into the badlands, I did not feel afraid. Instead, the sand flying into the headlights mesmerized me, making me forget who I was, where I was, why I started on this journey. There was no transport van with my mother's body before me, just the wind and darkness and a sense of wonder, the same feeling I had in my earliest years when the earth and the elements and the tiniest creatures were miracles. The storm stopped and I descended from the car. The sun hung high and blazing and I looked down the highway to spot a lake shimmering on the empty road. Awake, I would have known the water was a mirage, but in my dream, I was thirsty and walked toward it, still believing with the faith of a child. I grew up in a homeland favored by the Fata Morgana. Long before I understood illusions, I would see Spanish galleons floating over the horizon. For years, many of my ideas about the world were tricks of the environment. We're here, my father said, waking me. We got out of the car and went to my mother in the transport van. Her eyes had reopened in transit, and she stared at me as if acknowledging that I'd spent a lifetime doubting what I saw. I felt her chastising me with her gaze, as if she were saying I could no longer stay small and invisible as Indian kids are. I was a 50-year-old woman now, and it was time to grow into more than a ghost child in love with and afraid of mirages. Thank you.